If you take your Bibles and open them to 1 John chapter 2, we will close out chapter 2 this morning and move into chapter 3. Still got a couple more chapters to go, but we're working our way through this great letter of 1 John. The title of today's message, if, if you take just one thing out of this message here this morning, it would be you would remember this title. See how great a love. Verse goes on to say, as we'll see, the Father has bestowed upon us. Now, as many of you are aware, over the years I've had the tremendous privilege of being a coach and a trainer in many different athletic endeavors, in any training environment. I believe wholeheartedly it's the responsibility of a coach or a trainer to speak in direct terms with his players, with his team, if you will. At times, that's what they need. You can't be afraid of tough conversations. You can't sugarcoat what needs to be said in those type of environments. The players know what's real and the difficulties ahead. At the end of the day, they want a coach who's, of course, qualified and, of course, focused on winning What's more, though, they truly desire one who cares for them no matter the outcome. Is this not the same for a parent? How many of us have either given or received no-nonsense words of admonishment? I'm sure we'd all agree there are times where we need to hear that. That said... The good coach or the good parent doesn't always speak with words of warning, directness, and challenge. He also or she communicates at times with inspiring words of encouragement and comfort. There has to be a balance We see that even throughout Scripture. We've seen that in the book of 1 John, firsthand. We've continued to see John be polemical, if you will. That word we've defined in the past as defending the church against outside threats, being direct and stern and harsh with his words. You are a liar. You are a deceiver. Beware of these individuals. However, we've also seen John speak in a very pastoral fashion as well. Words of edification and encouragement and comfort. We saw in our message that we titled Characteristics of a True Christian... Even in that message, John spoke very blunt, direct words about what it means to walk in the light. The distinction between those that walk in darkness and those that walk in the light. But even after that message, if you recall, he transitioned again, then into more encouraging and comforting words. We titled that message, Strength to Overcome 
He was encouraging these churches in Asia Minor that the word of God abides in you. You will overcome. He knew that they needed to hear these direct words as well as encouraging and comforting words. Last week, we examined another more difficult message of warning. Notwithstanding, the message was absolutely vital for the churches of Asia Minor in order that they would be guarded and prepared to protect themselves against imposters, as we called them, for false converts. As we work our way through this book, our foundational spiritual muscles are certainly being stretched and strengthened. Last week was another hard workout for us. That said, any hard workout as we seek to physically, just on that type of surface, strengthen our muscles, or if it's metaphorically speaking here, concerning our spiritual muscles, always needs rest and recovery as well. We can't just go full bore and direct. We need rest. We need recovery. In our passage here this morning, once again, we find rest. Not so much direct, stern, harsh words of warning, but words of comforting peace and encouragement. And even as I say that, we have many within our body, or some particularly, that need words of comfort and peace and encouragement here today. And by the grace of God and his providence, God has that for you specifically today, for each and every one of us. Our passage this morning, 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 28, we'll go through verse 3 of chapter 3. We might identify the theme of this passage as, for the child of God, there are certain past, current and future hopes that causes us to abide in Christ and to walk with confidence. That's what John intends to communicate in this passage here this morning. This morning we'll look at three affirmations from the passage. Affirmations that should answer the question, for born-again believers, how do we abide in Christ? And how do we find hope? With that said, would you stand with me, please, as we read our passage? God's authoritative and living word. I'll begin with chapter 2, verse 28, and read through verse 3 of chapter 3. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. 
Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Thanks be to God for this precious word. You may be seated. Our first affirmation taken from verses 28 and 29, is number one, justifying confidence. Justifying confidence. Last week in our message, Beware of the Impostors, our final principle, if you recall, was to abide in Christ. Now, we've previously defined this term, this abiding and then abiding in Christ as remaining in Him, Staying focused in him, never leaving him along the way, within that commitment to abide in Christ, we've identified man's responsibility to walk in the light. Moreover, we've also identified the sovereignty of God as the fuel behind it all. Now, Those are two dual truths that Scripture often proclaims. We'd be wise to remember words from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11 as we approach what seems to be a paradox. That man is responsible, yet God is sovereign. Paul said in Romans chapter 11, Who has known the mind of the Lord? How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. Remember this. Anytime when you come to passages such as this or throughout the Bible, as we approach the scriptures with humility and submission, understanding that he is infinite and that he is God and that we are finite and that we are man. All of that said, though, concerning this abiding in him. These verses are going to demonstrate more of what this looks like to abide in Christ, to abide in him. Look at verse 28 again. You'll see a present and a future hope along with a primary command concerning our responsibility. When he says, now, little children, abide in him. That's a command in the original language. That's a command for us as born-again believers to remain in him, to stay focused in him. In the use of now, to begin the verse, right away there's an immediate connection to what was previously mentioned. Because of the false converts, And the distractions of this world. He wants these churches, John, to now, little children, abide in him. Being mindful of their circumstances and even our circumstances here today. This is a command which charges all believers to remain in Christ. To live a life of practicing righteousness. Why do we do that? What does it look like? 
The verse goes on to say, look again at 28. Those two key words that reference an answer to what has just been stated. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. We abide in Christ because the one who first came as a lamb is coming back as a lion. Christ is indeed a loving shepherd, but yet he is also a consuming fire. That said, our affection for him should never curtail our reverence for him as well. To use a parent illustration once more, a child in a biblical home is fully aware of an intimate and enduring love that that family offers to him while at the same time also being fully aware of a healthy respect, honor, and submission to the headship that God has placed over him. Our responsibility to abide in him will always, in some sense, be anchored in a reverential anticipation for the Lord's return, that he's coming back as a lion. Just as we read, providentially, just happens to so be, In our scripture reading this morning in Ephesians chapter 5, he's coming back for a church that is holy and without blemish. That should concern us, not in a condemning way. Remember, this is a message of encouragement. But it concerns us to live a life of holiness that we would not shrink away at his coming. John says when we abide in him, we have confidence. And we don't shrink away at his coming. Let me use a biblical home again as an example. Even in the midst of discipline within a biblical home, the child is fully aware of the unconditional love of the parent. In the same manner, as for us, we all at times have experienced the discipline of the Lord. We grieve Him at times in our flesh. That said, those of us that are in Christ know that His love always abides on us, even in our failures, even in our shortcomings. When we abide in Christ, by anticipating his return, we live with present and future confidence. One that creates in us a confidence and encouragement that we are no longer under condemnation. God does not hold us responsible. That weight was taken upon the Son. Amen? Moreover, we're not afraid 
of his return as we eagerly await it. Paul said it as such in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, when he said, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul eagerly anticipated, longed for his return. He knew that there was a crown of righteousness awaiting him. Like a child that's released from his baggage of shame, we can now proclaim with a freedom of speech, Come, Lord Jesus. Standing confident and boldly, knowing How great a love the Father has bestowed on us. And this word confidence, John uses it three other times. Each time it involves a courage and a boldness to stand before God. Think of the significance of that for a moment. Each and every one of us, unworthy of any great love, but yet those of us that are in Christ will not shrink away from him at his coming. You and I will stand without fear before the sovereign king of the universe, knowing how great a love he has bestowed upon you. We will stand boldly because we have abided in him. The command of Scripture Our responsibility to do so. So, what about the justifying part of this confidence, though? Look at verse 29 again for the real hope behind this confidence. The verse reads, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And John, once again, uses a conditional statement in the original language that we've discussed, communicates that the truth is assumed. Within the context, we've seen in chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light, and in him no darkness exists at all. For John's original audience, as well as us here today, we know that God is righteous, holy, pure, and true. As we attach this word justifying with confidence, 2 Corinthians 5.21 shines a magnificent spotlight. Paul said he made him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's because of his righteousness that we're even able to become the righteousness of God in him, be that as it may, within the context of this letter, as we examine ourselves as the believers of of that day in Asia Minor would have, what do we as born-again believers find? 
my brothers, my sisters in Christ, we find that we walk in the light. We keep his commandments. We keep his word. Even all of these verbs throughout 1 John he uses in the present tense to communicate an ongoing demonstration of lifestyle. I had a sweet and precious conversation even this week with a brother in the Lord from this church as we discussed wrestling in the flesh and how at times that brings discouragement as though we fall short. But as I communicated with that brother, this is a brother that practices righteousness. He keeps his word. He keeps his commandments. He walks in the light. Yes, he and you and me sin daily. But what does our life reflect? Those of us that are born again believers in Jesus Christ. It reflects a life that is justified before God. Rest today, friends, in the reality that those of you that are in Christ, you practice righteousness. You walk in the light. And then finally, why do you have justifying confidence today and in the future coming? As we alluded to, one reason is for sure the responsibility that you have demonstrated to abide in Christ. Your responsibility, man's responsibility to do so. Because of that, you have confidence before God. More importantly, though, you abide in him and you have confidence because you, as the end of verse 29 states, were born of him. The sovereignty of God. I promised you this message would provide rest for your spiritual soul and muscles. Ultimate rest always begins with a primary confidence in the sovereignty of God as opposed to man. Herein lies the first secret to your quest for hope, a justifying confidence which could only be birthed from God. All of us that were enemies before him, apart from the grace of God. Paul described this confidence in his letter to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. You'll know it near and dear to your heart. God's word reads, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. John desired that these churches 
would continue to abide in Christ. He commanded them to do so, and they had a responsibility to follow forth in that command. Nevertheless, their confidence would ultimately rest in what could only be birthed from God. How unfathomable, how unsearchable are his ways. My friends, what God began in you as followers of Christ, he will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. As you live in this world, live with a justifying confidence. God has provided you hope to look to the past and see what God has done on your behalf, believer, brother, sister in the Lord. Don't allow the sins of your past to bog you down and hinder you. You have been made in right standing with God through His blood. He's given you a command to abide in Him today. Take off the old and put on the new. And He's given you assurance of a future hope. Live as a sojourner, passing through, not a permanent resident. John has already reminded us, even within the context of this letter, that the world is passing away. In our second affirmation, we'll find more hope to abide through a magnificent, special, and great love that God has bestowed upon us. And that's number two, a sanctifying love, a sanctifying love. And this is just in verse one of chapter three. Right away, this verb See, it communicates much more than just a a visual awareness, but an intellectual desire that John has for the churches of Asia Minor. He wants them to take special notice of this great love, this special sanctifying love that he has bestowed upon them. God's word today wants you to take special notice if you are in Christ of the love that's been bestowed upon you in the same manner. Contextually, for the churches of Asia Minor, they had just been reminded that they were born of him. Look over in chapter 4, verse 10. John says, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not that we loved God. We were enemies, dead in our trespasses and sins. As for us, to take special notice of John's original intent and and to contemplate the question that we posed, how do we abide in Christ? And then forth, find hope. Words of Paul, once again, in Romans chapter 8, provides an excellent parallel 
and an inspiration for us, an answer to that question. Romans chapter 8, verses 32 through 33. You'll know it, how sweet it is. The word reads, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the us here? My friends, it's you, those of you that are in Christ. You who have been chosen and called by God. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on you. You were dead and trespasses and sin, but God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive together in Christ Jesus. You were born of God, not because you loved him or of anything good within you, but because he chose to bestow his love on you. Look again at the verse. If you walk away with nothing but this after this message, it will be enough. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Even the tense of this verb, bestowed, grammatically in the original language, communicates a tremendous Benefit to us of what was complete in the past, yet continuing to provide ongoing benefits for us now and even into eternity. It all fits together like a divine glove. Scripture interpreting Scripture. The analogy of the faith as the reformers alluded to. Remember John's intention From chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we titled that message, The Perfect Advocate. Christ is certainly the perfect advocate. He was the one who only provided propitiation for the sins of his people, the sins of his people throughout the entire world. His atonement, related to that word propitiation, was perfectly designed And without potentiality or failure, hence his special sanctifying love is also perfectly designed with specific individual and intimate purpose for you. Even as we sung today, your name engraved on his hand. That love, that special love, and we'll distinguish the difference here, was not for a potential mass of humanity. His sanctifying love, even before you were born, was bestowed upon you. All the while continuing to be realized and present and for eternity. So, This begs the question, though. Doesn't God love 
the whole world? If so, how is this anything special or significant for the children of God? My friends, the answer to that question is simple, and John 3.16 makes it perfectly clear. Of course John loves the entire world. However, that love is not the special, sanctifying love that God has only designed for his believers, for his children, one which God's word would have us to see and to take special notice of, one which provides a significance, which provides hope like no other. John goes on to show this when he says in the verse that we would be called children of God and such we are. God, by way of this great love, has set believers apart from the world as children of God. He has bestowed a special and sanctifying love setting you apart. You and I did not deserve it. Allow me to illustrate this for you. As believers, we've all been called to love the entire world as image bearers of God. No man, no woman should never not receive the love that God has commanded for us to be reconcilers with people. They're worthy of our respect. They're worthy of our love. All of the world. That said, every parent knows that the love that you have for your child is different than the love that you have for a friend. Whether your spouse, a child, or any close family member, this love is intimate. It's without compare. In the same manner, God has chosen to set apart men and women as children of God and bestow on them a sanctifying special love directly for you when he went to the cross he was thinking directly and intimately of you that's significant that's special this is separate from what is commonly referred to as God's common grace and his love for the entire world what's more And we've stated this, but let us never forget. As enemies of God, no one is righteous. And no one is worthy of that love. This drives us, even as we spoke about in in Malachi 1, 1 through 5, to grace and humility in how we characterize our lives as we operate with others. This is a love which the world will never know And this is key because of their rejection. Look at the conclusion of verse 1. 
He says, For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. As for John's audience, there most certainly would have been the constant threat to acquiesce, if you will, to the world, to not protest to the secret knowledge of the Gnostics, to just accept it or feel their rejection as the intellectualists as the day. Do you ever feel, brothers and sisters in Christ, like you just don't belong in this world? Jesus' message to his disciples in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, still rings true words of application for us here today concerning that. Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. In some sense, and we can make this argument even from the original language. This world is otherworldly. We might say that the true aliens are not from outer space, but born again believers in Jesus Christ. We are in this world, but not of it. Beloved, take courage that you have been called to be separated and set apart. You are special in God's eyes. When you feel the pressure of conformity, remember this, that you are different. That you are not of the world, although you are in it. God in his sovereignty has chosen to bestow his special sanctifying love on you. A love that will never leave you nor forsake you. A love that will cause you to abide in him. As you consider this great affirmation, specially and specifically intended for you, live every day with confidence for today and for tomorrow. A confidence which boasts only in the Lord. One which empowers you to live for Christ. And our third and final affirmation, we'll see the pinnacle of final hope. And that's number three. A glorifying future. A glorifying future. This will conclude us in verses 2 and 3. In our introduction, we, we define the theme of this passage, and let me repeat it again, as for the hope, or for the child of God, there's a certain past, current, and future hope that causes you to abide in Christ and live with confidence. In these final two verses, 
will once again see a current and a future hope. You can see from the onset that John reminds them again of their current hope when he says, now we are the children of God. You are no longer under condemnation. You are not under the law, but under grace. You are the children of God in the same way, believers in Christ, as John wanted to communicate that to the the churches of Asia Minor. That said, what about this glorious future hope that John transitions to? He once again revisits the return of Christ and communicates what is the greatest hope and confidence of any believer. The verse continues. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we see him just as he is. My friends, there's coming a day for us all where we will have no more need of discernment. We will no longer wrestle with the pool and the temptations of this world. We will no longer suffer any pain of any kind that this world has to offer or even death itself. We will see him as he is and be like him. What was once a clouded and foggy window of temptation and sin will be a magnificent, crystal clear window of purity and truth. That is our hope. That is our confidence. Paul described this glorifying certain future for the believer in his golden chain of redemption in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Listen to the certainty of this glorifying future that awaits those of us that are in Christ. For those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That is an absolute and certain truth For those in whom the Father has bestowed this great love upon. As for what that final glorification looks like, one commentator had this to say. He said, 
It is enough for us to know that on the last day and through eternity, we shall be both with Christ and like Christ. For the fuller revelation of what we are going to be, we are content to wait. I like that. It's enough to know that we will be like him and we will see him. It's enough to know that the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, are going to come to fruition. That great verse which reads, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Glory be to God. Our dear brother David knows and realizes that here today, and we rejoice in that, although we grieve. We will proclaim the words of Job in chapter 19. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Amen. Do you believe it? Rest in it. Take comfort in it. It's our glorifying future. How do we abide in Christ and find hope? We never lose sight of the ultimate culmination for all those in whom God has bestowed this great love upon. What's more, not only is this hope spring eternal and our glorifying future, but it play, pays dividends in our current journey with Christ as well. Look at verse 3 as we look to close. And everyone who has this, this hope, this hope, fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Contrary to the opinion of some, we can never be too heavenly minded. You know why? Because it inevitably produces earthly good. It's this type of hope that serves to contribute to our moral purity. Of course, understanding the limitations of the flesh, although causing us to abide in Christ, to walk in the light. So, at the end of the day, be encouraged, brothers and sisters in Christ, with a hope that will never disappoint you. Realize your confidence was made possible in the past 
through his justification and his rebirth of your soul. One which will allow you to eagerly await his return. To say, come Lord Jesus. There's a crown of righteousness that awaits me. Abide today in his special and sanctifying love. A love that has set you apart as a child of God. One where in the writer of Hebrews he said, He's not ashamed to call you brethren. And then finally, never forget what God began in you. He will bring to culmination in a glorifying future. One in which you will be like Christ and see him as he is. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We exalt you. We lift the name of our Lord and Savior on high. Lord, we are confident. We are justified. We have been set apart. We see how great a love you have bestowed upon us, Lord Jesus. Because of that, Lord, help us by your spirit that resides within us to live each and every day making the most of every moment, Lord. We will fall short. We know it. But, oh God, it's no excuse for us not to live for you. Lord, we thank you that you saw fit to look upon us as enemies, haters of God, and yet transform our hearts of stone into a heart of flesh. Thank you, Lord. And Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, if there be anyone here today who does not fully understand and realize this great love, Lord, would you draw them by your grace? Would you convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come? Would you bestow your great love upon them, Lord God? Would you cause them to turn from their sin and trust in you today as their Lord and Savior? That is their responsibility to do so. In the precious and mighty name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we pray.